Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday, so I've got to stick to my schedule this week. It's Parsha's Kisisa, which is obviously one of the most remarkable and embarrassing Parsha's in the Torah because you have the golden calf, the eagle is off, and everybody's trying to figure out how did that happen, and that's been held up against the Jews, to show how bad the Jews are for thousands of years already, ever since the Bible was translated into Greek, and the outsiders could see the story. They say, look how bad you are, and then the Christians and the Muslims, my goodness, and it is a very embarrassing kind of story. And for that reason, you know, the Jewish commentators from day one have been struggling how to explain that they just took, God took them out of Egypt, gave them the, the Ten Commandments, and Moshe was five minutes late, therefore they make a golden calf. I mean, you know, like uh, somebody said once, if they were, the problem they were yek is, you know, Moshe was five minutes late. If they would have been God's honor, it was a big deal, so he's a little bit late. You know, what's so bad? But whatever the facts are, this has certainly led to a strain of apologetics in which commentators from the time of the Chazal Luan are trying to respond to the anti-Semites by various ways of saying it wasn't such a big, bad sin. The easiest way is to say it wasn't the Jews who did it, it was their of Rav. The Chazal's like that. There's many Mepharshim like that, the Rambam, others. In which case it wasn't us. Uh, others say, get over it. it, the Jews did it. But then they'll try to say like this, well, the Jews did it, but it wasn't really an idol, it was some kind of a halfway uh, house idea, which probably is true, that, you know, they didn't think that the idol is God, but it's some way of connecting to God, or some intermediary, or something like that, and there's a whole strain of Mepharshim that way, in which case, shut up, you guys, it wasn't such a bit, it wasn't really a Bodhisattva, the way you guys worship your Bodhisattva. Uh, there's no question about that. Problem is, that when you look throughout Jewish history, we don't understand it today, I know it anyway, uh, there's something about the Jewish people in a golden calf, uh, or calves, uh, because it reappears. I don't know if you all know this, you know a little bit of Tanakh, this is not the only episode of the Jews worshiping a calf. I can think of at least three others. Uh, not that long after this story, they goes off, about 40... 45 years later, you have the story of the silver calf, not the golden one. But they call the Pesel Micho, which I'm going by Chazal now. They say it happened shortly after the Jews arrived in Israel. Uh, some guy, for, it's a whole long story in the book of Shoptim. Very weird story, no question about that. One of the most uh, weird. And what does it say over there? A guy built a calf, that's what they say had a silver, and made it like a shrine and like a certain idol. And uh, eventually it was moved up to where we call today Tel Dan. And it was an operation, Ad Yom Golos Haaretz, until the Jews were kicked out of Israel, which the Gemara, anyway, the Yerushalmi says, means that this uh, idol was worshipped, this shrine was visited by the Jews um, for 500 years, something like that. More, you know, 800 years, a very long time. Until... The kingdom of the north, where it was located, was uh, destroyed by Ashur, and the Jews were physically expelled from the country. So in other words, till the last day the Jews were in that part of Israel, they were 
uh, worshipping this calf. Uh, my goodness. <laughs> that makes the story in Kisisa look like nothing. And then, of course, after that, subsequently, when Yeruvim ben Avot founded the kingdom of the north, for those who know what I'm talking about, if you know a little bit about Jewish history, you'll know we're not good at politics, and therefore we've never been really united as a people. And the 12 tribes were not united into a single nation except for a short time under the three kings. Saul, David, Solomon. Shaul, David, Shlomo. So uh, they had their ups and downs, but at least during that time, when Shaul was the king, all 12 tribes, all 13 tribes acknowledged him. Same thing with David eventually, and same thing with Shlomo. However, once Shlomo died, the whole thing fell apart. And after the death of Shlomo, it broke into two separate kingdoms who fought each other, killed millions of each other. It's a bad story. It's in Malachim and Dibrayon. And they were there for two kingdoms, A and B. One in the south, one in the north. The one in the south was called the kingdom of Yehuda. The one in the north was called the kingdom of Israel. The one in the south contained Yerushalayim and the base of Megdush. So at least you had uh, Judaism had a fighting chance. The one in the north, which was headed originally by Yeram ben Nevat and 20 kings after him, uh, they started worshipping from day one almost, Egalazov, the, the golden calf, for certain political reasons. And so, understand me well, during the entire period of what you call the Bias Rishon, or almost the entire period of the Bias Rishon, Rove of Kal Yisrael, a decisive Rove, was in a place where the official religion was Egalazov. Uh, all 20 of those kings in the north, Yeravam and Nodav and Basha and Ela and all the, the longer strain of kings. Each one of them was committed to the Eglazov. The only difference is some of them were the Eglazov plus, like the Eglazov, and in addition they had Baal and Asherah, which are really hardcore of Odesara. And other kings, the better ones in relative terms, didn't worship the Baal and Asherah, but they did maintain the Eglazov. So what is this business of the Jewish people hooked to the Eglazov idea. Why was it uh, successful? How could Yeruvim ben Nevat push it? Obviously, it must have been in the air. It must have been something that was considered not shocking, uh, even though to you and me today it is considered shocking. Uh, it's a very weird story. But you see, there's something epic going on with the Jewish people in the Golden Calf. I remember there's a Ralbag who says that the way Yeruvim ben Nevat was able to, set, to get the people worship the Golden Calf is because they were rich and spoiled. It's right after 40 years under Shlomo. They got very materialistic. Almost as bad as uh, things are in America today. And everybody was doing well. As they say, Ishtachas Gafna, Ishtachas Te'ino. They were uh, rich and well off. And once you get rich, it's very hard to be spiritual. Uh, I don't know, but that's what they tell me. Never been rich. And the result is you get very materialistic. And you go for golden calves. Now, you end up worshipping something. First of all, a calf is like it's got to be a, 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 a wealth. And uh, this leads us to a very fundamental question. What's so bad about idols? After all, the most is just the wrong idea. Why does the Torah freak out about it? So if you worship idols, you get killed, you get stoned. It's the biggest of the Averas. What, 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 what's going on over here? And that's, by the way, a profound philosophical question. I'm not going to do justice to it now, but I'll touch on it. And um, clearly, the key point goes as follows. Whenever you make an idol... You're worshiping yourself because what you do is you construct an idol or an image that appeals to you. No idol is going to criticize you for what you're doing. The opposite. The idol is going to deify what you're doing. So in this country, if they're into uh, Gil Arias, so the idols are all going to be sex-oriented. In another country, like India, remember, they have Kali, the goddess of murder, so with all the hands. 
and so they're going to uh, deify the act of murder as something sacred. In another country, it could be infanticide. In another country, it could be something good, by the way, right? It could be something bad. The point is the idol takes one particular nida, shall we say, or action, and then raises it to the highest level, and then you're actually making, worshiping something that you like to do. You're, really, you're flattering yourself. You don't find in pagan history, as far as I'm aware anyway, uh, that the gods uh, criticize people for doing something that's not moral. You don't find priests criticizing kings for doing something immoral. They may criticize in the ancient world kings for not attending to, to the idol. And you're not paying our salary. You know, you're not doing your religious rituals correctly. But nothing in their personal lives, nothing in the uh, way they conduct themselves as, as people vis-a-vis -vis other people. Um, the Torah is different, as we know. The Torah is all full of Musa, you know. There, I don't think there's a single character in the Torah that doesn't get reproved one way or another for shortcomings here and there. It wasn't fun, but that's because it's true. And an idol, therefore, represents a pretty picture, which is not true. The Torah represents not such a pretty picture, but it is true. And you sort of like to take your pick. You can understand a lot of people would prefer the idol one, so uh, because then it's uh, flattering to them. Uh, that's how other religions are constructed, is it not? They take an idea that appealed to them, and they raise it to an extreme level. Um, that's, I think, true of all the religions, as far as, I can, as far as I can see. Now, in this story, the Eagle of an Arparsha, you see something that strikes me interesting. I don't know if anybody's talked about it. They must have. Do you notice, when they made the Golden Calf, what exactly did they say? They say, These are your gods of Israel, Asher He'elucho who lifted you up out of Egypt from the word Ola to go up. Asher he'eluch What does God say in the Ten Commandments that was given to him very shortly before the Golden Calf episode? As you know, it happened 40 days after Moshe went up there. It's about 40 days after Shavuos. What does Hashem say in Ten Commandments? Not, Anochi Hashem asher he'eluch I don't think so. It says, Anochi Hashem asher So in one case, God says, Hotzei but the Jews were looking for some by Asher Ha'alucha. Notice the difference in the verbs. As I say, it's got to be that some uh, I'm not the only one that noticed that. But uh, that's quite profound. Because Ha'alucha is simply a physical act that God took out of Egypt, as awesome as that is. He extracted you, shall we say, from the Egyptians. Ha'alucha means, I raised you up above Egypt. I made you something special. I, I liberated you, if you wish, from the ideas of Egypt. Um, that they couldn't get a hold, they couldn't connect with God, apparently. They needed some kind of an image. Uh, and as the Ralbach said, they were ungushed up with guilt. They had too much gold lying around because they took all that gold and silver out of Egypt. And therefore, bad stuff happened. But the notion that you are interested in something that raises you up instead of takes you out strikes me as a very profound one. And uh, that's why I guess Moshe saw that they misunderstand the whole story. But it is understandable because even our own time, when people get hooked on a particular religious leader and all of a sudden he disappears or dies, uh, a lot of the followers, uh, you know, go crazy and they end up worshiping all kinds of things that they constructed out of their own mind because it's it's what they want to believe in. And so over here, the Jews thought Moshe wasn't coming back, as you know. And what is it that Ma'aluchamir is from? Hotzei Sicha is in the past. But lahalos, to raise you up, to make you grand, to uh, give you your own identity, I suppose. That's probably what it means. Give you your own identity. 
that they wanted a symbol, and the calf, the Barbanel says in the connection with Yom and the Vod, is a symbol of Yosef. I think it's very interesting because the Jews were saying, what is it that raised us up in Egypt to be Chashev before we were enslaved? The Joseph story. In other words, here are slaves, and they remember way, way, way back when we have by handed down tradition for our ancestors that once upon a time we weren't slaves in Egypt. We had it good. And then we messed up. Boy, did we screw up. And we ended up as slaves and dying in the salt mines and the building the pyramids and the babies being crushed, all the rest of it. When was the last time we had it good? When the shore was in charge, when Yosef was there. And therefore, it's not so surprising that what they're looking for, an image that they can identify with, which raised you to a high status in Egypt, was Yosef, who, as we know, was the viceroy, but was a proud Jew at the same time. Uh, now, by the way, it's fine to have ancestral pride. The problem is they raise it to the point of a deity. And that often happens, by the way. People will be so hooked on my Zaidi was such and such a big person, that, uh, and he might have been, that your Judaism is really all about worshipping your family customs. And, you know, that's what it's all about, and instead of God. <laughs> and this seems to have happened on the way out of Egypt. Um, I believe there's something to this, this, this notion of the Yosef. And it's totally understandable because uh, Moshe's gone, we're stuck in the middle of the desert, now what are we supposed to do? The last leader they knew about that was uh, gripping and uh, successful was the Yosef, was the Shor, was the Egel, as, as it were. And uh, the fact that, you know, you make it out of gold simply means that's the most precious thing you know and have around. The point there for the story is that people revert to sort of like atavistic, you know, what, what you remember from your childhood, what you remember from your, uh, you know, way back when in your subconscious. It's almost like a certain psychological phenomenon. And you see one on a mass level over here. To me, that's very interesting. Moshe, of course, comes down from the mountain, and he freaks out, as we all know. And then you have the famous story where he smashes the tablets. Who told him to do that? The, uh, to me, this is the first case of what we call Hurrah Shah. This is the precedent, as far as I can see, for the concept that once in a while you can break the Torah, you can break the laws, if you're doing it for the right reason. There's a time and a place literally for everything. And even though God himself just gave him these two tablets, but Moshe said on this occasion, in order to stop the dancing and freak everybody out and bring them back to their senses, uh, I'll smash the tablets. Uh, alternatively, you might say, like the Sefer Hasidim, Moshe was afraid, if I don't break them, these guys are nuts. Don't tell them and break them. Because I'll say, here's the tablets and here's the calf. And I say, we want the calf and break the tablets. So prevent them from doing it, he smashed it himself. He wasn't told to. Uh, but nevertheless, at the end, God says you did the right thing. Yasha kosher shibarta, as uh, the Gemara says. Now, uh, how did Moshe know you could take the law in your own hands? Uh, I guess he just felt it, and since he was Moshe, he got it right. He could have gotten it wrong and been punished by God. He didn't care. He was willing to take that chance. Now, I could be wrong because there are different versions of why he smashes the tablets. Uh, the Gemara and Shabbos very famously said, the Moshe made a Kavachomer, and Rashi quotes this. He says, you know, if, if a carbon Pesach can't be eaten by a non-believer, then the Ten Commandments can't be accepted by non-believers. And these people, by worshiping Golden Calf, are definitely non-believers. Uh, if that's true, what do they mean, what do the Chazal mean by portraying it in those terms as a Kavachomer? The answer is a Kavachomer is a Torah Dikasvara. A Kavachomer means not Moshe thought up on his own. It's not a matter of a Harashah. 
Moshe, using his logic, and who knows the logic of the Torah better than Moshe Rabbeinu, said, in this case, my Kalvachomer argument teaches me that what the Torah wants me to do on this and this occasion, we face the golden cave, is to break the tablets. In that case, Moshe was following the halacha. He was simply applying it. So it's very interesting whether you view this as a case of Moshe applying his own logic and it's a rasha, or Moshe applying the, what he re- operating, shall we say, the hermeneutics, the laws of the Torah, in such a way to tell him that this is the right time and the right place, according to the Torah law, to break, to break the tablets. Either way, Moshe took a drastic action, as we see over here, and uh, he was not punished. It's just very interesting. He wasn't punished. Matter of fact, he got the second tablets. But what does God say? Second tablets. I love this. He said, It's easy to break something that somebody else made, <laughs> right? This time you do the hard work of carving out the physical tablets out of the mountain. Once you, Moshe, do the hard work of carving out, quarrying out the rocks in the mountains, then I, God, will write on them a second time. But the idea is like this. It's easy to break something that somebody else made. When you yourself put in the sweat equity and you break it, you're not going to be, you're not going to rush to do it. And so God is like telling him, listen, next time you have trouble with the Jews, don't <laughs> rush to the yard and open up and break the tablets again. Uh, you know how hard it is to make them in the first place. And it'll give you a little bit of appreciation of, uh, you know, how uh, one has to hold their temper, shall we say, and uh, have value for what, you know, someone else made. Now, uh, this is, as we all know, a remarkable episode, because from now on, that means the Jewish people, for the rest of their history, are going to have two sets of tablets. The whole ones and the broken ones. The whole tablets and the broken ones. The Shibri Luchas. Shibri Luchas Menachem Zvarin, as they say. And there's a theory about two arcs, isn't there? Uh, I think I mentioned it to you before. And uh, it's a machlokas. Was there one Aaron or two Aarons? I won't go into all the reason why they say that. But there could have been a battle, Aaron, Aaron I mean. Uh, one they took out to war, and another one they kept in peacetime. The sources are unclear, that's in the book of Shmuel Aleph, but nevertheless, there it is. And it's a very interesting debate in the Chazal, which luchos were where? Were the good luchos, the second tablets, which were whole, were they kept in the arm, which was like the peace arm? And that's the one you see when you go to Mishkan, the base of Migdash. Whereas the other arm, the one they took in the battle, was with the Shivri luchos? Or is it the other way around? That the Shivri luchos were in the original arm, and the, and the second luchos were there? which kind of indicates, it's unclear in the Chazal, which luchos are more chashev. Are the original ones smashed as they were more chashev than the other ones that came later on? The arguments are both sides of this, and I think that'll give you something to talk about on your Shabbos table if you wish to. But i got to get out of here. My time is up, so have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.